Thanks so much for your singing tonight. My name's Will. I'm the lead pastor here at the porch, and uh, I'm so glad that you've decided to join us for worship this evening. And so if you haven't heard it yet, I'm wishing you a Merry Christmas. And I hope that tonight so far that you've been having uh, an awful Christmas. And uh, if you don't get that joke, then let me explain it. We've been talking about awe here uh, for about the last four weeks. We've been looking at the Christmas story through this lens of awe, which we've used the dictionary definition that says that awe is reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. And so we've kind of been taking a look at our Christmas story, that story that's so familiar that we've already told tonight, and we've been looking at it through the lens of different characters, maybe some people who didn't make the nativity. And we've said that, what does it look like to bring awe with us into this Christmas story? And so our hope for you tonight is that you get to experience just a little bit of awe. That you get to experience a reverential respect for this story that we tell this Jesus who was born in a manger mixed with a healthy dose of wonder and some fear all mixed in as we engage in this story. And I think if we're honest tonight, it's pretty easy to be in awe at Christmas time. Would you say that's true? It's kind of easy to go through and rehearse our Christmas story and to be here in this moment, right? We're all dressed up. We've got our Sunday best on. All of our kids are looking sharp mostly, right? We're smiling for the pictures. We're trying to keep everything together. And it's kind of easy to come to church on Christmas Eve to experience a worship service like this and kind of sit back and fold our arms and go, yep, that's Christmas, all right? That's what Christmas is and what it looks like. There's only one small problem with that, and that's that I think that too often we experience the awe at Christmas, but we don't carry it with us beyond this moment, beyond this season. We kind of let awe be relegated to this moment and this time, but we don't really carry it with us. And I don't know if your reason for that is like my reason for that, but part of it is that as I sit through the Christmas story and as we hear it told before us, and as we sing all of these songs, it's great, it's awesome, and I can find Jesus in that. But if I'm honest, it just really isn't that relevant to me. It doesn't kind of look like my life. My life doesn't look like this picture-perfect nativity that we've been talking about. My life is a lot messier than that, and I suspect that maybe yours is too. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. When's the last time uh, an angel showed up and gave you some directions, right? How about hands for a fulfilled prophecy? Anybody out there who can say that's up? Remember when you had your baby and somebody showed up with a box of gold? Wasn't that awesome? Right? Like this doesn't have, I love the Christmas story. It's full of awe and wonder and all of those things. It, it just doesn't look like my life. It just is somewhat unrecognizable to me. And so when we see this awe at the Christmas story, we go, yeah, that's great, but it's something that's outside of us. It's not internal. And that's kind of where I'd like to invite you in as we continue telling the story. What if we could carry this moment, this Christmas story, this awe and this wonder and this reverential respect with us? What if we could get beyond the picture-perfect Instagram photo of that first Christmas that's on every Hallmark greeting card? And what if we could come face-to-face with the reality that the actual Christmas story, that the story of that first Christmas looks far more like our regular, messy, awful lives than it does this picture perfect message that we've been telling. What if we could experience that together? Now let me start by, by going here. Have you ever been in a situation where you've kind of just thrown up your hands and said, why me? 
Right? Maybe life's going good, it's going in the direction that you want, work is going, family's going, things are moving along, and then it happens. You know what, it, when it happens, right? I don't know what it is for you, but sometimes it's, a, sometimes it's a diagnosis. A family member or a friend comes down with something. Sometimes it's a job or a job loss or the economy. Sometimes it's something far more personal and deeper than any of those. Sometimes it's a relationship that's ended and you kind of find yourself throwing up your arms and going, why? me. Everything was going in the right direction. Everything was moving along just as I had planned. Why me? Why do all of a sudden bad things happen to good people? Right? Have you ever been there? Maybe you're in a season of that right now in your life where things just don't seem to be aligning. They don't seem to be matching up. This isn't quite what you signed up for. And if you're a person of faith or if you have heard this story before, you may even begin to extrapolate that on to God. Right? We've all had those moments where life is kind of clicking along and we think, oh, God must be really happy with me. I must have God's favor right now. This must be really, really good. And then it happens, right? Something bad happens and we instantly go to, well, I must have done something bad or wrong. Something must not be quite right. Otherwise, God wouldn't be treating me this way. We tend to contextualize our experiences and place them on God as if the rightness and goodness in our life is directly connected to our relationship with him, his pleasure with us. The biblical word is a little bit fancy, but it's his favor. And so we think when life is going great, we have God's favor, and when it isn't, then clearly we're out of God's favor, and we've got to do something to get back on God's good graces. The problem is that that whole thought process is simply not true. It's not consistent with the biblical narrative, and it's certainly not true of this first Christmas. Let me show you what I mean. So we already looked at the story in Luke, which is this picture perfect, everything flows well together, and it's the story that Linus tells Charlie Brown at Christmas, right? We're all familiar with it, and we love the story in Luke, but there's a different passage. There's another way that this story is told in the book of Matthew, and it's a little bit more raw. There's a little bit more awfulness to the story, and I'd like us to explore that together tonight. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18, this is what Matthew records about the birth of Jesus. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. This is a young couple. They're in love. They're engaged. They're betrothed to one another, right? Life is all moving along at the pace at which they wanted, and then it happens, right? All of a the sudden, they're going along, and they get this great news, and their fruit basket, their apple cart is a little overturned. They're ready to start this new life together. An angel shows up and he says, hey, I've got good news. You'll bear the Messiah. He will be called loved. And all of that sounds great. But when we look a little bit closer at the text, there's some pieces of the story that maybe don't jump to mind when we think about Christmas. Right? It says that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, now just a, a key word here. Found to be with child outside of marriage for Mary was not a good Christmas present, right? Put yourself in her shoes. She has to tell her future husband, hey, I'm pregnant, and guess what? No paternity test needed. Joseph knows he's not the father. This is an awkward conversation to have. This is not Merry Christmas. This is not everything's working out great. This is a big deal. 
Now, let me just remind you that at this time in history that an engagement, a betrothal, was just as serious as a marriage. As a matter of fact, in this particular culture, in the Jewish culture, you couldn't break an engagement except by a written divorce. And oh, by the way, any of the qualifications for divorce were punishable by death. The translation is that for Mary, being pregnant with the Messiah was not good news. It was a big problem. Mary must have wrestled with the consequences. What do I say to my family? What is Joseph going to say? People were going to think she was crazy, claiming that this was a virgin birth. And by the way, her source is an angel, which is a little bit like saying aliens, right? That's kind of what it translates into. So Joseph, who Scripture says is a righteous man, a zealous man who loves the Lord, tries to do the righteous, upstanding thing. And honestly, can you blame him? Verse 19, Joseph was her husband, engaged, betrothed, was a righteous man, and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. He cared about honor. He cared about doing the right thing. He cared about respecting Mary, his future wife, the one that he was engaged to. The problem is that he also cares about her, right? Stick yourself into the story, into Joseph's shoes. What do you do if your fiance tells you that she's pregnant and that an angel is the one who told her this, that her son's going to be the Messiah? Hey, I didn't cheat. I didn't do anything wrong. And maybe you want to believe her. But that's a lot to believe. That's a hard pill to swallow. Now, again, he does the respectable thing because it was within his right to have her publicly stoned. And instead, he plans to sign the necessary papers to divorce her quietly. Goodbye to his family dreams. Goodbye to their future dreams together. Goodbye the future snapshot of their perfect marriage. Again, for Joseph, Christmas is completely awful. This is not good news of great joy. This is life ending. There's good news though, right? Joseph sticks around, although not without a little bit of persuasion in verse 20. It says, but after he had considered this, divorcing her quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. So the good news is that Joseph sticks in there, but the bad news is that their life is still turned upside down. What do you think the pregnancy was like for them? Nine months of scorn and ridicule. They were most likely shunned by the small community town that they lived in. Their parents would have probably disowned them, had nothing to do with them. Not just Mary, by the way, but Joseph for sticking with her. Their friends would have turned their back. And in a small town, you know how this works. Her pregnancy is the talk of the town. This would have been awful. And to top it all off, there's this thing called a census going around, right? We read about that in Luke's gospel, and a census isn't like it is today where they come and knock at your door, you fill out the survey and mail it back in. No, you had to report to the patriarchs, the father's hometown. And so Joseph is from a little town called Bethlehem. Maybe you've heard of it, but it happens to be about 75 miles away from where they're living. Mary had to travel 75 miles on a donkey when she was nine months pregnant, Have you ever traveled with a pregnant woman before? This is not good news. This does not turn out well, right? When Melissa was pregnant with our first child, I moved her across four states. We stayed in a total of eight different homes. We moved eight different times in the course of two months. 
Yes, we're still married, and yes, I learned my lesson, right? Traveling in the third trimester is no joke. It's not fun. It was not enjoyable. And Joseph and Mary, who are not yet together, who are not yet being together, who have not yet experienced the intimacy of a marriage, they have to travel 75 miles on a donkey at nine months pregnant. Another bonehead move, right? Joseph didn't use Priceline. Motel 6 didn't leave the light on for them, so they show up and there's no place to stay during the census. The town is flooded with people who've gone out and now there's no place to stay. So they make a deal with an innkeeper and they stay in his barn, in his stable, which is really probably a bad translation. It just means the place where the animals were kept, which tradition would tell us is probably in a cave. Something that was easy just to close off the front of it, keep the animals cool. So ladies, when you tell the story about your first child being born, I'm sure that you imagine that it was in a stall in between the goats and the cows and that in stall three in the middle of the straw and all the other stuff that goes on with animals that you wouldn't have an appropriate place to lay your baby except the food trough. This is the story of the first Christmas. Now pause with me for just a second. This is awful. This is bad. This is not fun. This is not what they signed up for. I can assure you the angel left this part out. Except, you may remember the angel's greeting. It's the same question that we started off with, right? Wasn't Mary favored by God? Wasn't Mary favored? Greetings, you who are highly favored. You're going to bear the Messiah. If this is God's favor, I don't want to be on his bad side, right? This is awful and terrible. This is bad news. And Mary's got to be sitting there wondering, if I'm so favored, if God is so good, then why is life so hard? Why is life so terrible? If God's good and he's in this, then why is my life so awful? By the way, have you ever been there? Have you ever been doing things that you felt like you were supposed to do, following after God, perhaps in the way that you were supposed to, and maybe you're here tonight and you're going, man, my life just feels like a mess. We're singing these Christmas songs full of awe and wonder, and we're celebrating the wonder of the season. You think, yeah, right, what's so wonderful? I've heard this story before and I've listened to this line before and if God is so good and the gift of Jesus is so awesome, then why is my life so hard? Why is life so awful? Let me tell you that I think that Jesus came into the world to fundamentally answer this question. It just isn't necessarily the answer that we want to hear. See, Jesus didn't come to make things easy. We all want easy street, smooth sailing. We all want to add a little Jesus to our life and then things get better, things get easier. Everything starts going our way. That's our definition of God's favor in our life. But the truth is that he didn't come to make things easy. Jesus came to make things right. Jesus came to take what was broken, what was not working. Think about a bone out of place or a joint that's misset. And Jesus doesn't come to make it easy to fix that. He comes simply to take what was broken, what was wrong with the world, and to put it back into alignment with his Father and with himself. See, Christ came into the world and it doesn't look like the Christmas cards that we send. It doesn't look like this beautiful nativity. It doesn't even look like the songs that we sing. It wasn't smooth, it wasn't peaceful, it was not quiet. God left the awe of heaven, the glory of being in God's presence, and he entered into the awful. 
into the not peaceful, into the not perfect, full of clutter and crud and noise. Christ entered into the imperfect world just as he enters into our imperfect lives. Not to make things easy, but to set things right. See, we love the story in Luke. It's familiar, it's narrative, it's engaging, but the reality is that we need this story in Matthew. We need this story in Matthew to remind us that that first Christmas was awful, just like how at times and in seasons of our lives, our life can be a little bit terrible, a little bit awful. But Jesus comes and he takes what was awful and he transforms it into moments that are full of awe. He takes the plain awful and he turns it into something that is awful. Because here's the secret, right? Our life doesn't look like the Christmas cards that we send. It doesn't look like our Facebook and Instagram feeds. And you may be here thinking that life is pretty awful right now. Maybe at work or at home or with the kids or problems in a significant relationship. Life can get us down from time to time. But the hope of Jesus means that with the ups and the downs of life that we carry this awe of who God is within us. See, Jesus doesn't come to simply be a historic character. He comes to dwell and to live and to be close to those whom he loves. Life may be awful, but it can also be full of awe. And really, that's what the Christmas story is all about. And more than anything, what an awful Christmas is about is this God of the universe who was lacking nothing and who needed nothing. He was perfection embodied. That he would choose to set all of that aside. That he would come to be born, to be cold, and to be outcast, and to lay on a bed of straw simply to come close to us. So that in our living, and in our breathing, and in our comings, and in our goings, that he could be present with us and teach us to redeem the moments of our sometimes awful lives to be a part of an even greater story. A story about a God who so loved the world that he would pay any price including sending his own son not only to be born in a stable, in a manger, in crud, and in filth, but also to die, so that whoever believes in him will spend eternity with him. Because no matter how awful life gets, the truth is that there is a greater power at work, and Christmas is fundamental proof that there is a God who loves us. And that that God does not shy away from the awfulness, from the mess, from the hardships, from the difficulties of our lives. But as a matter of fact, he steps into the middle of those moments and he takes what is awful and he transforms it into something that is full of awe. And when you come face to face with that reality, it it scrambles your brain. You can't even process it. It's so outlandish and out of this world that it doesn't even make sense. And so as we tell this ancient story, as I reflect on it personally, I can't help but find myself bowing in reverential respect. I can't help but be overcome with wonder and a little bit of fear about who this God is who would do such a thing. In other words, when I think about Christmas, not only about that first Christmas, but about the messed up, awful, terrible Christmas that sometimes happens in our lives, I am in awe. I'm simply in awe of this Jesus, of this God who would love us so much. How about you? Is today business as usual? 
Did you come because it's expected, because your family wanted you to, because it's just what you do at Christmas and right now you don't even want to engage with the Christmas message. You don't want to hear this story because to you it's just that, another Christmas tradition that you've grown out of like so many other traditions from your childhood. Or maybe, maybe, just maybe, You're looking at this story from a fresh perspective with fresh eyes. You're sensing the awe and wonder of this God that we serve. And just like the Grinch at Christmas, maybe your heart is growing three sizes too large. And the more time that we spend reflecting on the meaning and the message of Christmas, here's the best part. Nothing about Christmas stays put. Nothing stays here, right? The decorations go away, the presents get opened, and Jesus does not stay in the manger. He walks into the rest of our lives. See, awe isn't relegated to a season or a story. Awe is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And when we carry that awe with us, then everywhere that we go, awe is literally all around us, and everything that we see and encounter and experience, and all we have to do is to stop long enough to pause long enough, to reflect long enough, to let the awe of the moment that we're in remind us of this God who came and who loved us. That's the opportunity that we wish and hope and pray for you tonight, that you would have the opportunity to experience the awe of that first Christmas and that within that experience we would find ourselves telling the same story that's been told for 2,000 years, that's been anticipated for 4,000 years, and that just as those people at that first Christmas were fundamentally transformed by what they saw and heard and experienced, our invitation, our ask, our challenge for you is that you would be transformed by the awe of Christmas as well. And so as we close, we're going to sing the song, Silent Night, a traditional carol that we all love to see. This may be the reason that you came tonight. But before you dig for your candles, before you go finding those lights, let me just remind you that Jesus comes saying that he's the light of the world, that no darkness or awfulness can extinguish that light. And so just as our light radiates from one Savior, so the light in this room will come from one flame. But as it's passed along, you'll watch the light grow and it represents what it is to follow Jesus, to carry this light, this awe, this reverence with the person of Christ. And so as we sing this classic song, your challenge and invitation is to saturate yourself in the awe of the moment, to be completely present, to let the light and the love of Jesus go with you and as you go out into the world, to carry that light with you. Because following Jesus doesn't mean showing up on Sunday morning and it doesn't mean showing up on Christmas Eve. Following Jesus means carrying the light and the love of Jesus into everything that we do. Jesus comes not to make life easy, but to make it right. And when we take that rightness that Jesus gives to us, that awe that he bestows upon us, and we take it out into the world, then we shine our lights, not because of who we are, because of of who Jesus is and because of what he's done for us. It's because we've seen the baby in the manger. We've heard the angel's proclamation and we've been transformed by the awe and the wonder of Jesus Christ. That first Christmas may not have been a silent night. It may not have been that holy with the crying and the manger and the shepherds and everybody coming along, but make no mistake, tonight can be a holy night. Tonight is an experience for you Not only to hear a story that once happened, but to make it real and alive and active in your life. 
So as we light candles, just a friendly reminder. Please dip the unlit candle to the lit candle. Once your candle is lit, keep it vertical. If your children are with you, they should have gotten an activity bag. If not, there's some at the back, and there's a little flashlight lantern in there that they can use to participate as well. But my invitation to you as we sing Silent Night is to take a moment to experience the awe, to connect that with this ancient story that happened, and to have an opportunity to tell a new story, to have an opportunity to experience something brand new within and of yourself about the wonder and the awe of who Jesus is. Would you stand with me as we sing Silent Night? Ooh. Mm-hmm.
to thank you for joining us tonight. As we exit, the story continues as you shine the light and the love of Jesus into your world. So as you blow out your candle, place your hand behind the flame, envision the light of Jesus being given to you to share with others. As you exit tonight, you'll be able to place your extinguished candles in the boxes. And as you leave, there will be offering baskets available for as one. You want to give offering to them. We're going to exit singing the third stanza. Have a merry, merry Christmas, everybody.